following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone. And uh, so today we're looking at Ecclesiastes 11, verses 7 to 10, and the title is simply Rejoice. If you have your Bibles with you, we'd invite you to turn there. You can also see the verses up here on the screen as well. And it reads, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let's pray. Father, as we do each week, Today, we want to invite your work to be done in our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, working with the power of your living word to change us and transform us. Let your truths overcome the lies that we so often are prone to believe. And ultimately, let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who not only initiates our faith, but perfects it. And so, teach us this day, we pray, through your living word, in Christ's name, amen. As we've been seeing from the preacher's journey to find meaning in this life under the sun, uh, it's taken him, as we've been saying almost every time, uh, to some really dark places. But over and over again, just when it seems like he's on this precipice of fatalism and despair, he somehow finds wisdom that helps him bring meaning to life and sense out of the chaos that he sees around him. And now as he wraps up his book, he ends not on a note of pessimism, but on one of actually optimism and hope. And so the preacher challenges us, as we saw in that last message, to cast our bread upon the waters, or in other words, to live courageously. Life, in other words, should not be about minimizing as much risk as possible, but to embrace life with all of its risk and the challenges that it brings to us, trusting that God is going to take care of us. He said in that, those verses that we shouldn't be like the farmer who stares every day at the gathering storm clouds, so consumed with worry about what tomorrow may bring, that he ends up never planting any seeds, and sadly, as a result, never experiences a harvest in his life. Instead, he invites us to let go of our treasures, to let our ships sail to distant lands, to be bold and generous in our investment in God's kingdom, using the resources that God has given us to, in essence, as he says, diversify your portfolio and just give generously wherever you can because you never know what exactly God is going to bless. And what is ultimately going to bear fruit in your life? 
And so this is a message of boldness and courage and generosity. And as we think about that, it invites us to ask ourselves, what am I really investing in in my life? What seeds am I planting around me that I hope one day to reap a harvest from? Is there any harvest that you're expecting in your life at the end of it all? Well, having talked about courage and generosity, the preacher now calls us to a life of joy. Like I said, he doesn't end on a pessimistic note, but on an optimistic, excited note. And he says this time, what your life ought to be characterized by is joy. But the way that he begins it is not with a command, but with a picture. And the picture that he paints is in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And he gets us in the right state of mind by painting this imagery of basking in the glow of sunlight, enjoying the warmth and the light that blankets us. And I think right away it's important because so often I think when we talk about this idea of Christian joy, we somehow tend to over-spiritualize it to the point where it becomes so otherworldly that there's almost no connection between joy and happiness or joy and pleasure. And I think that's wrong. Now, I do want to argue that there is a distinction between typically the way the world thinks of happiness and the way the Bible describes joy. But, you know, it's sort of that picture of the Christian going, yeah, I'm joyful. You know, it's like, well, could you tell your face that, you know? Because if that's what joy is, I don't really understand it. You know, and so the way that the preacher begins, it says, just picture yourself basking in the warm glow of sunlight and how pleasant that is and how enjoyable that is. That is him giving us a picture of joy, of what it feels like to experience joy in your life. But then he continues in verse 8, and he says, So if the person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. The preacher, first of all, says, listen, whatever number of years God's give you, God gives you, find joy in them all. Meaning, whether you're young or whether you're old, you should all celebrate with joy. But he adds this little rider at the end of it. And he says, you know, the joy that you experience is not one that flows out of ignorance or out of escapism. And what we've seen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is how honest the preacher has been about the fact that in this life that is filled with sin and brokenness, we're all going to have some pretty dark days, aren't we? There are going to be plenty of days where you don't feel like there's anything to rejoice about, anything to get happy or excited about. But I think the argument of the preacher is that to possess wisdom is to find joy, even in the midst of darkness. It is a joy that is untouched by the circumstances that we face, no matter how difficult they may be. And this becomes one of the hallmarks of true Christian joy. And it's what distinguishes us, I would argue, from the happiness that the world experiences. Well, I think you've probably heard that a lot if you've grown up in the church as a Christian, that, you know, worldly happiness is not the same as Christian joy in that Christian joy rises above circumstances. But I think a fair question for anyone to ask is, yeah, but how does this happen? Because in truth, I don't experience that kind of joy 
in my life. And I would argue this, without faith, I don't think it can. Because if you only focus on the circumstances that you're going through at any given time, then the truth is you're really not any different than the world, are you? In other words, if your happiness depends on what's happening to your life right now, then the truth is, I would argue, you're probably not going to experience much joy in your life. It's always going to be something that you're waiting on but never quite realize in your life. And it's not until you're able to see your life through the lens of faith that joy starts entering the picture. Look at what happened to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. He writes, I want you to know, I want, something's wrong with this clicker here. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And, um, I think something went wrong with this slide here. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. Now, you got to understand, Paul is locked away in prison right now. He is chained to guards 24-7. And not only that, but while he's in prison, these people that are supposed to be his brothers in Christ are actually using it opportunistically to take a shot at him, to basically kick him when he's down. And what they're doing is, it seems like what they're doing is they're trying to encroach on his ministry and somehow feeling like the Christian life is a competition and trying to beat him at his own game. Now, I would argue this, that if any of us were in his shoes, I don't think joy would be the word that would describe us. I think it most likely would be grumbling and bitterness and complaining. But that's not, in fact, how Paul reacted to his situation. It's, it's rather remarkable. Instead, he's actually gushing with excitement. And he says, you know what? These guys that are chained to me, they cannot go anywhere. <laughs> and so I am preaching to a captive audience. And so all of the guards are hearing about Jesus through my imprisonment. And then he says, not only that, but what I'm hearing on the street is that people realizing what I'm going through have their own faith encouraged. So they're even bolder about their evangelism because of what I'm going through. And that is awesome. And then on top of this, he says, and you know these guys that are thinking that they're hurting me by trying to compete with me? Well, you know what's great about it is even in their bad motives, Jesus is being preached. So praise God for that. You see, you can't put this guy down. He's like the Energizer Bunny, you know, you just, there's no way to get him down. And when you look at that, you're like, that's ridiculous, you know? I am not like that. But that is the perspective of faith. I think that is the power of the gospel. You see, without Jesus, all of us are just stuck in this very narrow, small-hearted, very self-preserving mode in our life. You know, about in any circumstance, we're always asking, well, what's in it for me? What do I gain from this situation? 
And the truth is often we don't gain. It's not to our advantage. And so there's no joy there. There's no happiness. But the gospel frees us to say that God is going to take care of me. And I don't have to worry about all of these circumstances that I feel are against me. And I can actually celebrate what God is doing. Even in the dark times, I can recognize His hand and realize that He is being glorified and He is accomplishing His will, just like Paul did in prison. You know, it looks like I am in the worst possible situation. It looks like I am to be pitied over everyone. But the truth is, I have much to praise God for. There's so much exciting happening here for the sake of the gospel. That is the freeing power of the gospel. Is that I am no longer trying to engineer everything so that I feel I gain something from the situation. But I now feel that I can rejoice even in my difficult times because I know that in everything that there is a purpose and that God will ultimately win the day. And I just want to challenge you before we go on. What would your life look like if you were to approach every circumstance you face in that way? I want to argue that probably for most of us in this room, we do in truth walk through most days. Some days are good, some days are bad. And it all depends on circumstances, doesn't it? It all depends on how people treated us. It all depends on how things went my way and my favor. But just imagine walking through every day believing that God has your back and that everything that He introduces into your life is for your good, whether you can see that or not. And imagine the ability to rejoice in that. I want to actually give you a um, practical application to this. Um, one of the, you know, I, I almost every week as you're driving home, I'll ask Betty, uh, what, my wife, what, what do you think of the message? And one of the recurring things she'll tell me is, uh, you know, I wish you gave some more practical application to your message because sometimes you stay in the theory too much and stuff. So I've been trying to take that to heart and trying to be more practical in how I help people to apply these things. But I want to tell you about something that I've been doing personally this last week that is trying to apply this message into my own life. Um, I, I went on this website called soulpulse.org and um, I want to invite you to do the same thing, okay? Now, I'm going to explain to you what it is. Please don't do it right now. You know, just take a note on it. But it's a very simple website. You just go to it, and you put your email on there, and it's very quick to sign up. It'll ask you a few other questions. But what happens is this. When you sign up to soulpulse.org, what it's going to do is it's going to send you two random text messages a day at different times. It, it actually asks you, when do you go to sleep, and when do you wake up? So they won't beep on you when you're in the middle of the night, when you're not awake. And it just randomly, twice a day, it'll just send you a text and it'll say, it's time to take the survey. And what you do is you just click on the link and you take the survey. It only takes about two minutes to take the survey. And it'll ask you questions like this, like, do you feel the presence of God right now? And it's not asking yes or no, but how much. So it's on a slider. So you can say, eh, but this much, I feel God's presence right now. And it'll ask things, just simple things like, do you feel joyful right now? Um, you know, it, it'll ask you, how many hours of sleep did you get last night? In the last hour, did you argue with anyone? And it's just these random questions that come up, and you take these surveys. And then at the end of two weeks, at 28, or maybe it's, yeah, after 28 surveys, it'll give you a report that sort of does a diagnostic on your spiritual health. 
And so I'm just one week in it, so I don't know what it's going to tell me. Maybe I'll report it next week, and uh, you're not going to want to hear it maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure I want to hear it. I'm trying to be as brutally honest because sometimes it says, you know, uh, how much do you feel God's presence? And I feel like I'm supposed to say all of it, you know, but sometimes the truth is I've come to realize in that moment, I don't feel God's presence. I, I feel rather alone. And so I put, I don't really feel his presence right now. And it's just a, a way of taking your spiritual pulse to see how your soul is doing. And um, it's interesting to me, uh, I'm seeing everyone nowadays wearing these Fitbits, these activity trackers everywhere, and we're obsessing how many calories did I burn, you know, how many steps did I walk, you know, um, you know, what's, uh, you know how many hours did I sleep. And, and we're obsessing over our physical health, but why not take a pulse of your spiritual health and see how really am I doing when it comes to the peace that I'm genuinely experiencing throughout the day? the joy that I feel. Even without having gotten the report yet, I'm beginning to see the impact that this little soul pulse service has been having in my life as it's caused me to reflect. Because I'm almost like this, that survey is going to come any minute. Uh, Let me think about the presence of God, you know, so that I can say that I feel His presence. I know that's backward and it shouldn't be that way, but it's just made me more aware to think about, you know, where does my faith really exhibit itself in my life? You know, on a moment-to-moment, hour-to-hour basis. Like, do I really feel His presence every day of my life? Does that really have a real impact on the way that I approach any given day? So again, you don't have to do it, but I would just invite you to do it. It'd be kind of fun if you even did it as a small group together and then maybe with friends and stuff. You can sort of, don't, don't compete or anything, but maybe compare notes and see how each of you, you did. Okay. All right. Well, the preacher continues in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So he now draws his attention to the younger people in the audience, and for the second time he issues this command, rejoice. But more specifically, he, he tells them to celebrate and even revel in the joy of their youth. And if that wasn't dangerous enough, he says something that sounds flat-out unbiblical, telling us that we should, quote, walk in the way of your heart. Now, I want you to actually digest that for a minute. What he's actually telling us is, if you want to find happiness, just follow your heart. How often have you heard that message in church? I'm guessing probably never. Um, It doesn't sound like a very Christian message, does it? In fact, that message seems contradictory to some other parts of Scripture, like Numbers chapter 15, verse 39. It says, you will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by by what? By going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Now, passages like this we're much more familiar with, right? In essence, saying, like, don't follow your heart because your heart is going to lead you astray. It's going to lead you in really bad places. It's going to mess you up if you follow your heart. That's more of a romantic message, not a Christian message. But you can't get around it. 
He says, listen, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, meaning the things you see that you want to do and the things your heart is telling you you want, go for it. But we have to realize that he also includes in there this final statement. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, that sounds very passive-aggressive, doesn't it? Go and do as your heart desires. Go for it. Seize the day. But by the way, just remember that judgment day awaits you. So run along and have a good time if you can, you know? Um, How are we supposed to understand verse 9? What what is he really saying here? Is he just really being snarky here and just getting in our face about... um, what it really means to have pleasure. Well, I want to say this. I think at first we have to take this command to rejoice at face value. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, I think we really run in genuine danger of talking about Christian joy in such an otherworldly way that we divorce it from any sense of actual pleasure or desire or enjoyment. Now, I just got done in the beginning part of the message saying that there is a Christian joy that is deeper than circumstance and that is able to be present and real and powerful in our life, even in the dark times. But the Bible also talks about a joy that appeals to our desires, to the hungers and cravings within the human soul that longing for happiness. And that is the kind of joy that I believe he is talking about right here. A joy that is earthy in his expression. And we found it throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes 5.19 Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Ecclesiastes 9, 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. You see, there is a kind of joy of Paul in prison. But there is also a joy of experiencing God's goodness and the gifts that he gives us in this life through his creation. And I'm going to argue that it's the second kind of joy that makes Christians pretty uncomfortable. And we don't really know what to do with it. Because for a lot of us, as I said in a previous message in the same series, it sure sounds like just hedonism in disguise, you know? I mean, what difference is there between that message and the message of the world? to go and party and enjoy yourself and live it up. Well, again, I think the key is found in this last phrase here. As the preacher points out, even as we're invited to enjoy the pleasures of life, we must do so within the boundaries that God has laid for us. And so we enjoy food 
but we don't overindulge to the point of gluttony. We use our money to buy some things that we really want, but we also budget our money so that we could give generously and sacrificially for His work. We enjoy the pleasure of working out and stretching our body to the limit, but we guard our hearts against this obsessive consumption with our body image or our fear of aging. You see, for every one of these pleasures that God invites us to enjoy, there is a danger. It's acknowledged. There is a danger to them that can get out of control and consume us and become addictions and idols. And so he says, you know, there is a certain freedom I give you to enjoy these things not as tools of Satan, but as my gifts to you. Because I am the one who created these things. I created pleasure, not Satan. So enjoy these things as my gift, but do so knowing that there is a judgment coming, that you need to learn how to enjoy them in the way that they were designed to be enjoyed. And as we're doing these things, part of it means I learn how to give thanks to God for them. And one of the things that I talked about is that we see too often our pleasures as necessary evils in life. And so we tend to take our pleasures underground, don't we? I mean, we have this whole outer world of work and duty and obedience and getting the job done that we do that everyone can see. But the truth is we have these secret cravings in our heart, these yearnings that maybe are not being met by our work or the things that we see on the surface. And so we are drawn to these temptations that cause us to sin. And so this whole world of desire and pleasure becomes actually a very dark world for many Christians, a part that we don't feel honest about, that we can't really bring before God with. These are just necessary evils that I have to indulge in in secret, apart from this public life that I show before others. But part of discipleship is learning how to enjoy the things that God gives us in a way that actually honors Him and within the boundaries that He has laid for us. And as you can see, this is going to take some training. It's not going to happen overnight because the truth is often when we follow our heart and are led into these desires, they do in truth consume us. Often they do enslave us and they become our masters. But we have to learn how we can actually enjoy these things that actually produce thankfulness to God and appreciation saying, this is what you have given me, Lord, and I rejoice in that and I celebrate it. And I do it without embarrassment, without apology. I rejoice in this rather than it driving us to guilt and fear of God. I think that's a message that we need to take to heart is so long as we respect the boundaries that God has laid around this world of pleasure, He gives us this freedom to enjoy some things, you know? I mean, there's nothing to be apologetic about that. But there's this freedom to enjoy life and receive that as His gift to us. I, I want to say this. I don't think in a previous period of my life I could have accepted this message, you know? There was definitely a very long season in my life where a message like this would not have resonated with me at all because I saw the Christian life 
as all duty, as all obligation, as all work. I, I was a good soldier for Jesus. And you want to know how to bear down? I bet you I could beat any of you in that game, you know, in terms of beating my body and sacrificing myself and paying the price and carrying my cross. And there is undeniably an element of that in the Christian life, of carrying our cross and sacrificing. But here is the real danger, is when we somehow see that that is the entire gospel, is that God feels more like a slave master than a father who wants us to delight in him and who showers us with his good gifts. I want to say this. Christians who don't experience joy, and I think the truth is there's a lot of us running around out there. If we are Christians who don't experience this joy, I think we're incredibly vulnerable Christians who are just waiting to succumb to some kind of more sinful, sinister temptation. Look at what Dallas Willard says, and I apologize, this is a bit of a longer quote here, but I just didn't know where to cut it off because what he says is just so powerful. Spiritual people do not play. That is the usual view. For one thing, they are too serious ever to play. And while spiritual people can have joy... They probably should stay stay away from just plain pleasure. While it is not in itself bad, it might ensnare them, or so we seem to think. Spirituality is not a pious pose. It is not a thou shalt not. It is a thou shalt. It flings open the doors into the eternal blessedness, energies, and resources of God. It is a serious thing to remove the element of relaxation and play from any life. How many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied? Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality within the freedom of God's loving rule. Such failure to attain to deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Here lies the strength of temptation. Normally, our success in overcoming temptation will be easier if we are basically happy in our lives. To cut off the joys and pleasures associated with our bodily and social existence as unspiritual then can actually have the effect of weakening us in our efforts to do what is right. Do you hear what Willard is saying here? He's saying there's a lot of joyless Christians who sound very spiritual by saying, you know, it's not about play. It's not about having fun. This world is not about having fun. This world is horrible. It's about doing work. It's about saving souls. It's about being on the front lines and rescuing people from hell. And out of that, they never really experience the joy that God has designed for them. And as Willard suggests, we even distort the gospel and chase away people who look at our lives and say, why would I want that? Why would I want to become what you are in that? Well, the preacher closes with these words in verse 10. Remember vexation from your heart 
and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He uses this word vexation throughout this book. And what he means by it is a heart of bitterness that arises from all the frustration of living in this broken and fallen world. It describes a person who has never gained a heart of wisdom, but instead is going all the way down, kicking and screaming and mad at the world. It is the heart of a person that wants life to be good, who wants the happy life, but finds that fate and the world is working against him, has conspired to make him miserable. And so it's this, the picture that he uses is vexation. It's just, ugh, you know, it's like this, this gritting of your teeth and this inner rage and anger at life and at God. And I think what he's really painting here is this, is these are really essentially the two paths that you can choose in life. You can choose the path of vexation, of frustration, and anxiety, and anger, and trying to make life work for you by your own might, by your own will, by your own strength, mad at the world, mad at God, and frustrated with life. Or you can choose the path of faith and of peace and of joy and of surrender and say, God is so much bigger than me, and he is more than capable of running his world. And so I surrender control to him and recognize my humble place in his creation. And I receive the small gifts that he gives me with pleasure and thanksgiving and joy. And every day then becomes a celebration. Every day becomes an opportunity for me to genuinely thank God. I want to argue this. Without faith, there is no joy. And without joy, there is no power for Christian living. I, I don't know how you're taking this message up to now. Uh, I, I'll acknowledge this is growing up as a Christian, I never liked these sermons on joy. And I try to psychologize, analyze myself a little bit this week because I remember the second the preacher, and there you get this guy up there who's all bubbly, and it's always these bubbly guys that preach on joy, because the real stern guys never preach on joy. And so he's like, you know, talking about, oh, you should be joyful. And, and I know it from my youth group days, all the way through, anytime one of those speakers came out, I just kind of folded my hands and frump, you know, and like, and I, I thought about why is that, that I used to react that way to these messages of joy. And I realized that it's because when you preach about other stuff, like reading the Bible or about missions and dying to self and stuff, it's always stuff that I felt I could do. You know, I felt empowered, like I, I could do that. I, I, I can do that better than most people. But when it came to joy, I realized I felt very insecure and very helpless because commanding someone to joy is useless, isn't it? Like it almost makes you feel worse about yourself, you know? Like, you know, come on, you know, don't worry, be happy. Like, let's all just be joyful. It almost makes you angrier, right? <laughs> like, why don't you just be quiet and come down from there? And I don't need to hear that message because that's the truth, isn't it? Is you can't will yourself into joy. You can't. You can't take it upon yourself to say, I'm going to be joyful. But there are definitely things that we can surrender to, to invite joy into our life by faith. Lewis Smeed's 
says, to miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence. Do you hear that? C.S. Lewis writes, joy is the serious business of heaven. And what he says right before he said this quote is that, similar to what Dallas Willard said, you know, we look down on pleasure and play as childish things, trivial things, frivolous things. You know, that's the domain of children, little kids. You little kids run and play, the grown-ups are going to do work. You know, we think of the real serious stuff as work and pain and sacrifice. But what Lewis says is the reason why we view things that way is because we actually live in an upside-down world. What we don't realize is that the real serious stuff of heaven is actually joy and celebration. And I wonder how many of us are missing out on the whole point of Christianity as God desiring to bring joy into your life, not just giving you a new job description or a task. Let me close with this story in the Old Testament. After years of rebellion and sin and an unrepentant stance toward God, God finally placed His judgment on Israel. And through the hand of the Babylonians, He handed over Jerusalem to their enemy. They came and they tore the walls of the city and burned them to the ground. And they burned the temple of God to ashes. And they were all taken except for a remnant to be captive in Babylon. And they were there for decades when finally God extended His mercy once again to His people. And through this leader, Nehemiah, uh, who became the governor of Jerusalem, was sent back from Babylon to Jerusalem to oversee the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, what he found there depressed him. He found a defeated and broken people who are, in essence, defined by their failures. You know, they knew. They knew that they had failed God. They knew that they were a generation born out of punishment. And he looked and he said, this is going to be my army that is going to help me to win the day. And what he did was he got all the people together and he had Ezra, the scribe, take out the Bible. And he had Ezra begin to read the law of Moses to all the people. And he began to read the law and something strange happened. The people all began to break down and weep and cry uncontrollably. And I think reading the Bible didn't have the intended effect that Nehemiah wanted. But I think what happened was, as the people were hearing the Bible being read, they were all just, it was like a reminder of how much they had failed. It was like a reminder of their sin and the consequences of their sin. And so the people all began to weep and cry out to God. But what's interesting is what happened next. 
Nehemiah says, stop crying, stop crying. You're not supposed to be crying today. This is not a day for crying. I intended this to be a day of joy. And look at what it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still. For this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. You see, Nehemiah knew that the work ahead of these people was incredible, almost unbearable. The things that they were going to be asked to sacrifice were enormous. The enemy was at their gate threatening them, and yet God was calling them to rebuild the wall. And so the way he did it was not to give a brave heart speech, you know, but instead he gathers them and he says, each of you go to your own houses, get the best food out of your pantries, kill the fatted calf, do whatever you have to do, and tonight is to be the party of all parties. And I want you to party down like you've never partied down. And as you are partying, give thanks to God for everything you've received because you are not to be defined by your failures. You are to be defined by God and His joy over you. And His joy will be your strength. And the Israelites celebrated that day. And in 52 days, that wall was rebuilt in Jerusalem. Nehemiah understood that joy was not a trivial issue. It's not the stuff of children to tell them, go run along and play. Joy is the serious stuff of heaven. And without joy, we miss the whole point of the gospel. John Ortberg writes, We will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrows. Jesus is remembered, among other things, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is his temporary response to a fallen world. That sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. And maybe that's where you and I have to start. How do you picture God? Because I think if many of us are honest, we don't picture God as a smiling, laughing being. I think we picture him as a stern, frowning father who's always disappointed about something that we didn't get right this week, something that we didn't pull through on. 
And I think that is where we have to start with this distorted picture of God, to realize that God is a God who smiles. Jesus writes in John 15, verse 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. As Lewis Mead says, to miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence. I think God is most glorified by us when we so delight in Him that joy overflows out of us. And I don't think that's a very accurate description of most Christians. In our book club, we're reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. And what he says in his opening chapter is that unhappy Christians have done more damage to the witness of Christ than all the most powerfully eloquent atheists that this world has ever seen. And when I read those words, I was really struck by them. Unhappy Christians have done more damage to the name of Christ than all the atheists out there railing against God. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But as he's seeing, you cannot will this joy, you know? You cannot force it in you. But maybe what we can do is our open our hearts to God and saying, God, we confess. I don't know, I'm just so wrapped in my own little world. I'm so wrapped in my problems. I'm so wrapped in my failures. And the truth is, most days go by not with joy, but with disappointment, with dissatisfaction. I always feel like I'm waiting on joy, but I never quite get there and find joy. Maybe this is an invitation that God is giving to you to just let go of some of the things that you're holding on to and just to say, God, I'm just going to trust in your promises and believe in them. And I want you to heal my eyes like you heal the eyes of so many in the Bible. Let me see through the lens of the gospel, this world as you see it. And let me see you accurately as you really are. Because in truth, when I do think of you, I picture an angry, disapproving father with arms folded, looking down at me, disappointed. When I pray, when I sing, when I do my devotions, I want that picture to be replaced by a loving father who looks down with me with joy. I want to know that God. I want to know the real God who is there. And my prayer sincerely for every one of us here at ICC is that if there's any one descriptor that would capture the heart of an ICC member, it would be joy. It would be joy. Almost a, a childlikeness a spring in our step, uh, a freedom and self-forgetfulness and a thankfulness that overflows in the way that we worship as God's people. 
So can I just invite you for a few minutes to just pray that to God and say, Lord, I want the joy of my heart. And I know that I'm not there at this time. But Lord, would you do a work in my heart to open me to being able to experience joy like that in my life. Let's just pray that prayer to the Lord as our worship team comes to give us a time of response through singing. Thank you.